Hello and welcome back to Story Talk. This is episode number eight. My name is Laura Randall. I'll be your host. And if this is your first time joining us, welcome. If this is your second, third, or more time joining us, thank you for coming back. I'm really excited to talk to you about the story for today, which is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And it has a bit of a complicated attribution. It's by Sony Pictures Animation and Columbia Pictures in association with Marvel. It also has three directors, maybe one from each of the studios, I'm not really sure, but it is especially impressive that they managed to pull off this movie because there were so many different pieces that had to come together to make it happen. But there is a lot to be impressed with in this in this take on Spider-Man beyond just the cooperation of many different groups to make it happen. So let's dive in right away because there is, there's just lots of juicy stuff for us to chew on with this story. If you are new, you should know that there are lots and lots of spoilers in these episodes. So if you haven't seen the movie and you're okay with spoilers, then that's great. If you have not seen the movie and you're not okay with spoilers, then pause this episode and go watch it and then come back and talk with us about it. To uh, start off, we always start with a summary of the movie, and that's just to keep the whole thing fresh in our minds. And this time as we go through the summary of the movie, I'd like to point out to you some of the vocabulary that is used when writing a story. It's really useful when um, we're learning to talk about stories to have the vocabulary in order to recognize pieces of story anatomy, so to speak. If you're learning to draw, say, the human figure, it is not very effective to just sit down in front of a model and try to draw them. That is what you do to practice drawing the human figure, but it really helps if before even drawing that figure, you can recognize some of the landmarks of the form. If you know where the clavicles are, for example, or if you know you know that certain muscles attach in these places, or if the fingers have these shapes and the bones are in these positions because then you can start looking for those things in the specific figure that you're drawing. You can you can identify those key features in the figure that you're drawing. And the same thing is true for story. When we are learning to analyze a story, it's much like we're just sitting down in front of a figure and trying to learn to draw it. We're trying to learn to to talk about this story figure. And it helps a lot to know the story anatomy, um, at least some basic elements so that when we are analyzing a specific story, we can look for those landmarks within that story. It will tell us a lot about where the story is in the timeline and how the directors and the writers and the actors have all chosen to put the story together. If we can recognize those landmarks and we are watching for them as the story unfolds. So, in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, we start with uh, the boy Miles Morales. He comes from um, a two-parent home, which is very unusual for a hero these days. They often like to have heroes be orphans because uh, to separate the hero from the parents allows them to figure things out on their own. And they do that in this movie by sending Miles to a prestigious prep school, some kind of 
preparatory middle school in New York City where he's separated from his parents. He's he's sleeping there for most of the week, and then he'll be coming home on weekends. So he's not very far from his parents, but he's separate enough that he has to figure out most of this story by himself, which is a really cool decision. I love seeing strong parents in movies. There just aren't enough of them. And it, it seems to me that there are very few writers who actually understand the internal workings of a parent. Um, a lot of the time we see parents who are either doofuses or who are, are lazy or who are just uh, abusive or, or kind of mean to their kids. And the parents of Miles are none of those things. They are real characters. They're very fleshed out. His mother is a nurse. His dad is a police officer. And they really care about Miles, but they also have stuff going on. They also have opinions and likes and dislikes. And they really want the best for Miles, but they have complicated relationships with him. It's amazing the depth that they've been able to capture in this relationship between Miles and his parents. Even uh, while still separating him from them enough that he can have this standalone adventure, this adventure outside of being parented by them. It's very, very impressive. So Miles is going to this preparatory school, and as we come into Miles' life, he's listening to some music. Uh, he's singing along with the music and and um, feeling really good about, you know, this, this song. And it's very relatable because at these moments, like when we are singing along to music, we're simultaneously more confident than usual and more vulnerable from usual. So when Miles is listening to his headphones and his dad's voice cuts in because he's been calling Miles to get ready for school, when his voice cuts in, Miles kind of jumps, he's startled, he he looks out at uh, towards his bedroom door and he says oh yeah and and his dad asks if he's ready to go and we are immediately connected with Miles because of this moment of very innocent vulnerability uh, we've we've all been there in our in our private space listening to our music and then suddenly interrupted and afraid that somebody heard us and and thought our, our voice was not very good or whatever. It makes him very accessible, very normal, very vulnerable to us. And so we like him right away. Then he's getting ready for school. He has this, this uh, preparation for getting ready for school that's pretty funny. And then his mom is kissing him goodbye and he wants to walk because he doesn't want to be seen driving up to the school in his dad's car. But after a couple of blocks, he trips on his shoelaces right into the intersection, right in front of his dad's car. And so his dad picks him up in the police car and he's driving him to work. And we start to get a sense of this relationship between Miles and his dad. And this relationship is really important. Most of the movie is actually about Spider-Man, but behind all of the stuff about Spider-Man, this story is about Miles and his dad and his uncle Aaron. That is the that is the energy core that is spinning at the center of this story. And so it, it's really important that we pay attention to this beginning sequence of Miles and establishing his relationship with his dad. Now, establishing is a key word for the story anatomy because this beginning sequence as we are getting a feel for who Miles is as a character and what his trajectory will be through the story. This is called the establishing shot or the establishing sequence or the 
the normal level at which the story is beginning. And we see that Miles' relationship with his dad is changing. Miles is starting to grow up a little bit, and so he's looking at his parents in a different way. He's trying to distance himself, especially from his father, because his father seems to uh, push him a lot. He wants Miles to succeed, and so he he puts some pressure on Miles to do well and to reach farther than he might otherwise have reached. This uh, it, this especially comes through because we can tell that Miles is very uh, studious or very intelligent. He has passed some kind of test that entered him into a lottery, and he won the lottery to go to this special uh, private school. And his father is excited about it because he he sees this as a sign that Miles is succeeding. He's going places. Um, Miles kind of resents going to this private school in all likelihood because it represents what his dad wants him to be and not necessarily what he has decided that he wants to be yet. Uh, So as they're driving to school, his dad is trying to make conversation. He's pointing out this new coffee shop. He's making jokes and Miles just isn't responding. He's not excited about being driven to school by his dad. He wants his dad to know that he doesn't think he's very cool, and so he's kind of sulking in the back seat as his dad tries to connect with him. We immediately like the dad in these scenes also because we like Miles and we want him to be happy and comfortable, but at the same time, we can see that Miles still has some things to learn, that he's still very much a kid, and His dad in these scenes shows us that he is a boundary, he is a foundation, he is a a wall that, that Miles can push against, and he will be stable for Miles, which is really what what teenagers and and young adults need, especially as they're going through all of these other changes in their life. They're looking for something solid to hold on to, to, to stand on. And we see that Miles' dad is committed to Miles, and we see that he is going to provide a firm surface for Miles to press against as he's growing up. That's that's rather comforting to us as an audience because we we uh, presumably know how Miles is feeling, and so we also know that he needs reliable people in his life like this dad. And when his dad drops him off, he lets Miles get out of the car, and he says, I love you, Miles, and Miles says, yeah, I know, and uh, then shuts the door and tries to walk away. But his dad, who has a radio in his police car, takes the radio and calls out to Miles as he's walking away and says, you have to say I love you back. And then everyone on the steps of this school turns to look at Miles, the new kid. He doesn't know anyone. He's being dropped off in a police car. All of this already makes him a bit of an outsider. And then his dad is just embarrassing the heck out of him by demanding that he say I love you back to to him in the police car. So Miles resists at first, but the more he resists, the more embarrassing it gets. So he he finally gives in and just says, I love you, dad. And his dad says, that's a copy, and then drives away. Uh, Miles is then plagued by other students saying, that's a copy, that's a copy, as he walks into school. 
Thus, his first moments at this new school, his first impressions that he's giving the other students are all marked by this relationship with his dad. And our impression of Miles is marked by this relationship with his dad because this is also our first impression of Miles. And we can see that there is a lot of loving but still real tension that is happening between this child and parent. But Miles doesn't have a lot of time to be distracted by this relationship with his dad because he very quickly gets sucked in to the school year where he's been being given lots of tests, lots of homework, lots of papers, etc. And we have a good sequence that rather too accurately brings back all the pressures of going to uh, a demanding school. We can see that Miles is about to buckle under all of this pressure from the new school because he, the pace of the film slows down enough that we get one scene with him talking to his teacher. And his teacher is showing him a test in which Miles has gotten zero out of a hundred. And Miles comments, oh, it looks like I, I got a zero, huh? Well, a couple of more couple more of those and you'd probably have to kick me out, huh? And he doesn't seem very torn up about it. He is actually hoping that he might get thrown out for having a zero on his test. But instead, the teacher says, do you know how many questions a person would get right if they were blindfolded and taking a multiple choice test? And he says, uh, 50%. And she says, that's right. In order to know all of the wrong answers, you have to know all of the right answers. So she changes the score right in front of him to be 100 because even though he technically got all of them wrong, she can see through his attempt to get out of this school and uh, assigns him instead a personal essay about who he wants to be. And this is a great beginning because this whole movie is about Miles deciding who he wants to be, who he wants to become. But when Miles goes back to his dormitory in order to do this essay, he gets rather distracted and he starts looking out the window and he decides that instead of doing this essay, he's going to go and visit his uncle Aaron. So he sneaks out of his dormitory, he makes it across town, he climbs into the window of his uncle Aaron's apartment, and we can tell immediately that he is at ease here, that uncle Aaron and uncle Aaron's apartment are a safe place for Miles. He jokes with Uncle Aaron in a way that we haven't seen him do with just about anybody else. He uh, feels relaxed with Uncle Aaron. When Uncle Aaron offers to teach him something, Miles is actually interested versus the, the other times that we've seen Miles' dad or, or teachers trying to teach him something, and he's either stressed or a bit apathetic about what's going on. But with Uncle Aaron, he's interested. He thinks Uncle Aaron is cool. And so he listens to Uncle Aaron. And when Uncle Aaron sees Miles's sketchbook, Miles sketches tag designs, tagging art, he suggests that he and Miles go and throw up the the piece of art somewhere that Uncle Aaron knows. So Uncle Aaron takes Miles down to the subway and they bust out the spray paint bottles and they start painting the walls with this tag art that that Miles has designed. And when they while they are spray painting, a spider shows up. And of course, we know what the spider is because this is a Spider-Man movie, so we've just been waiting for this spider to show up. And this spider is the catalyst for our inciting incident. An inciting incident is another one of our key story anatomy pieces and maybe even one of the three most important 
key anatomy pieces. So if you only remember a little bit of the story anatomy, remember this one. It's called the inciting incident. The inciting incident is when the character, whichever main character we're following with the story, when the main character encounters a force or a situation or another character or something that changes his trajectory in the world. Up until the inciting incident, the character is living his or her normal life. After the inciting incident, the character is in a kind of tailspin trying to figure out what the new normal is because he or she has been pushed out of his or her normal life into a new path. And for Miles, we know that this means a spider is going to be involved because it's a Spider-Man film. So when the spider shows up while they're tagging this uh, place in the, in the subway, uh, we know that the inciting incident is coming, but the, the writers draw it out. They keep having this spider, you know, crawl around, hop around on the spray paint bottles, uh, crawl underneath his clothing, jump up and down. He's, he's all over the place, but he hasn't bitten Miles yet. And so Miles is doing this tag art piece and the spider is crawling all over. And we are just waiting the whole time to see when the spider is going to push Miles out of his normal trajectory. And that happens all the way after the piece is done. And Miles has come back to Uncle Aaron and Uncle Aaron admires the piece. And he says, I see just what you're trying to do here, Miles. And before they leave, Miles holds up his phone to take a picture of it. And the spider crawls up onto his hand and bites him. And we get a very dramatic uh, sound cue that this has changed everything for Miles. We see his blood start to change. His DNA is warping. Um, but then we zoom back out to just Miles and we see him as he has a spider on his hand and he slaps it off. You'll notice that in this movie, a lot of the storytelling is dictated by the sound design. This is one of the best examples of sound design playing a proactive role in the storytelling that I can think of because it, it doesn't just happen with the spider, although that's part of it. There's a lot of humor that the sound design brings to this moment with the spider. It was also in the stressful sequence as it establishes how much pressure he's under at school. The sound design was really important there. And then later in the story, it's a really important part of how frightening and traumatic it is when Miles sees or, or is chased by the prowler. A lot of the, the oomph of the storytelling falls into the hands of the sound designer. And that's kind of unusual for a film. The sound always plays a role in, in the storytelling, but in this movie in particular, it plays an active role in pushing the story forward, in communicating information, in generating the feeling that that is accompanying Miles or the feeling that we should be recognizing what's happening to Miles, even if Miles doesn't recognize it, as in the case with the spider. We recognize what's happening, but Miles doesn't. So the, the sound design plays a huge role in coaching us on what is happening in the midst of this story. But back to Miles. He slaps this spider off his hand, and then he follows Uncle Aaron out, and he goes back to his dormitory and falls asleep. Seems like a pretty normal night. However, when he wakes up the next morning, he is much taller. And all of a sudden, his thoughts sound loud in his head, and the, 
the animation of the movie changes. It uses a much heavier influence from comic books in order to portray the action. Up until this point, we have had a strong comic book presence, but the comic book presence has mostly been outside of Miles' uh, perception. At the beginning, we have a Spider-Man narrating his own uh, transition to becoming Spider-Man, and we don't meet that Spider-Man until uh, a little bit after this. But we still see the comic book, we see frames of action, we uh, have comic book shaders on all of the characters, and you'll notice that the the animation and the art direction of the whole film is designed to look like it is a moving comic book. But after this moment when Miles is bitten by the spider, the comic book elements proliferate, and his thoughts start showing up in these uh, square thought bubbles. And sometimes his actions or other things will be um, accompanied by sound effects or or other words that weren't there before. So the, the comic book presence is immediately greater after this inciting incident with the spider. And things begin to escalate after this. Miles goes to school. He gets his hair stuck in a new girl's hair. The new girl ends up being very important. She's Her name is Gwen Stacy, and she's one of the other Spideys. But uh, we don't know her as the spider woman yet and neither does Miles. But when he gets his hand stuck in her hair, she ends up having to shave half of her hair off in order to detach his hand. And then he runs into a school warden who knows that he's been sneaking out and gets caught in this school warden's office with very sticky hands, fingers, and feet, so much so that he ends up half-dressed in bare feet on the outside of a building with birds sticking to his hands and pecking him as he tries to walk on the outside of the building back to his dormitory. It's a very comical scene, and he makes it back to his apartment, but then um, realizes, due to a Spider-Man comic that falls on his face, he realizes that he is reenacting Peter Parker's first moments as Spider-Man, where, where Peter Parker was saying, why are my hands so sticky? Please stop sticking. No, now don't stop sticking. And that he was on the outside of a building too. And he recognizes that he's going through the same things that Spider-Man went through. And he thinks, no, that can't be happening because there already is a Spider-Man in this universe. We were we were introduced to him at the very beginning with his comic book, but we haven't met him in Miles' world yet. But Miles thinks there can't be another Spider-Man because there already is one and there can't be too. So he runs back to the the subway station, the underground place where he had done this tagging, and he's looking for the spider. And when he finds it, he tries to assure himself that this is a normal spider. It doesn't really seem like there's much of a point to this except for his, uh, his personal feelings of security about it, because whether or not it was a real radioactive spider, he still has all of these weird problems that are 
obviously Spider-Man like. So he would still have to deal with those anyway, but he wants to check to see that the spider is normal. And when he comes back, he realizes that it is not normal because as he touches it, it glitches and glitches is the word I'm going to be using to describe the trans-dimensional seizure that overtakes the characters who are coming from other dimensions. So we know from this seizure that the spider must be um, from another dimension, although Miles has yet to find out why that would be. And only a few moments after seeing this strange spider, Miles is then sucked into a fight that is going on between Spider-Man and the Green Goblin as the Spider-Man tries to prevent the Green Goblin and whoever he's working with from opening up a black hole under Brooklyn. And because the the room that Miles is in is smashed wide open due to this fight, and Miles hangs on to a piece of the debris that ends up being sucked back into the fight. He is right in the middle of all of it, and at one point he's falling into a chasm that has, or a, not a chasm, a crater that has been opened up by the Green Goblin as Spider-Man smashed him down, and he's falling into this crater, and, and he yells for help, and Spider-Man sees him, and Spider-Man comes to the rescue. He, he slings him up to what looks like kind of a construction platform and sets him down and then recognizes their spidey senses activate, and we can see it visually with the comic book influence. We see their spidey senses both activate, and they realize that they are both spider men, spider guys. Uh, and Spider-Man says to Miles, whoa, you're like me. Why don't you stay, stick around and I'll show you the ropes afterwards. I just have to prevent this um, guy from opening up a black hole under Brooklyn. And so he dashes off to finish the job that he started. And Miles is left to watch the whole fight. But unfortunately, there are another several steps before he talks with Spider-Man again. And those steps include a, another villain showing up called the Prowler, who attacks Spider-Man. It includes King Pin, who's another villain showing his face and and ordering this collider to start uh it includes spider-man getting forced into the flow of this collider much by accident but nonetheless forced into the flow and causing the machine to malfunction and fall apart to explode apart in the wreckage afterwards spider-man is very injured and Miles comes to find him, and Spider-Man says, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get up. I always get back up again. This is another important theme that's going to be coming back later. Spider-Man always gets back up again, and Peter says, yeah, I'm going to get up, but I'm really hurt. He gives Miles a technology stick, something akin to a USB, uh, which he calls a goober. And the goober, he says, you need to plug this into the top panel and disable the collider or everything you love will be sucked into this black hole that's going to open up because of this collider. Uh, Miles promises that he will disable the collider and then he has to run away because the villain group is approaching, which includes Kingpin, Prowler, and maybe a couple other of the cronies. They meet Spider-Man and Kingpin gets so angry at Spider-Man that he lifts his fist and crushes him, 
which actually kills Peter Parker. This is a really unexpected turn of events for us as the audience because we are used to Spider-Man always getting back up again. We're, we're not used to him ever sustaining a lasting injury, much less dying. And so this is a pretty intense beginning to this story. Miles then runs away and Kingpin sends the Prowler to assassinate uh, Miles for being a witness to this scene. Uh, Miles narrowly escapes and manages to get back to his own home, back to his mom and dad's apartment, uh, where he feels like he can be safe and he can lie down, he can rest and think about it. But no sooner has he lain down and is closing his eyes than his parents watching TV outside of his room uh, are listening to the news about Spider-Man being dead. And Miles looks at the goober in his hand. He thinks about this promise that he's made to Spider-Man. And he feels so trapped and alone that he he can't even feel comfortable at his parents' house. So he leaves there and, and starts walking and tries to figure out what's going on, what his responsibility is. One of the other... Um, great themes of this movie is the is the line that came from the first Tobey Maguire movie a while ago that said with great power comes great responsibility and they they play with that line a lot in the in this movie but Miles obviously has internalized this principle even though the movie itself is rather self-conscious of the of the line and a little bit mocking of it at times. One of the new things that we learn about Miles and something that endears us to him again that we like about him is that he takes this principle seriously. He sees that he has been given an exceptional portion of power and he is determined to be responsible with that power. He's determined to fulfill the promise that he's made to Spider-Man to deactivate the Collider. No one saw him make this promise. The only person who knew about it was Spider-Man, and he's dead. But Miles is ruled by an integrity so deep that even though it's going to cost him an entire reevaluation of himself, he is not willing to break that promise. And that is a really cool thing about his character. It's a really, it's a really powerful motivation for him. And it's a powerful thing for us to see in him as his audience. We resonate, we trust, we look for those people who are going to be honest about their actions. In the following scenes of the movie, we have what's called the rising action. The rising action is another anatomical piece of the story. After the inciting incident, the character is driven to an escalating series of encounters, a series of conflicts, a series of tensions that will prove his worth or prove his downfall, depending on the story. Because this is a superhero story, because it's a Spider-Man story, we already have a lot of expectations about what the rising action is going to involve. This goes back to the law of the story, like we've talked about in other episodes. But in this movie, because it's a superhero movie, we expect Miles to win. And because it's a Spider-Man movie, we also expect it to be funny. We expect some witty banter. We expect it to be rather, rather playful. We expect 
several conflicts, several physical conflicts in which Miles will learn things, etc. We we know all of those things innately, and this movie does not disappoint. The first several scenes after this, though, we have a a quieter build as Miles is evaluating his emotional state. He buys a, a Spider-Man costume from a merch shop and he goes to the eulogy for Peter Parker and he listens to Mary Jane and then he tries to work up his courage so that he can jump off a building and try to be Spider-Man. He knows that he is supposed to be Spider-Man, but at this point he's just wearing the costume of Spider-Man. After he attempts to jump off a building, though, and falls heavily on his hip and ends up breaking the goober that Spider-Man gave him, he feels like a really pathetic failure. And he goes to, to Peter's gravesite to apologize or to confess or, or something. He needs some kind of closure for this situation because he has nowhere to go with it. He doesn't know what to do about the goober. He doesn't know how to be Spider-Man. He doesn't have webs or a costume or any of the things that could allow him to actually become Spider-Man. And he's feeling really discouraged about it. At this gravesite with Peter, though, he meets his next key character. And that character is actually Peter Parker, but from another dimension. This Peter Parker is older. He has brown hair. He has a different life story than the Spider-Man from Miles's dimension, but he connects with Miles. And after a slapstick uh, chase scene, Miles gets this new Peter Parker tied up in Uncle Aaron's apartment. And Miles knows that Uncle Aaron has been out of town because he's been trying to call Uncle Aaron for a while, uh, looking for someone to talk to about these new powers as Spider-Man. When he finds this new Spider-Man, he doesn't have anywhere else to take him, so he takes him to Uncle Aaron's apartment and ties him up there. While they are talking, they figure out that this new Peter Parker is from another dimension. They find out that Miles is new at this. Miles tells the new Peter Parker that he needs him to be his trainer because the uh, late Peter Parker, the one who died, promised Miles that he would come and find him, and he takes this appearance of the new Peter Parker as the the person who is meant to train him. So he he wants help from the new Spider-Man, from the new Peter Parker, and and Peter just wants to go home. He is pretty disillusioned with this new dimension, doesn't really want to be Spider-Man anymore, is pretty depressed about what's been happening in his own life, and so he's he doesn't feel ready to take on the responsibilities of saving this whole other dimension and acting as a trainer slash such parental guide for a new Spider-Man either. So they banter for a little bit and the result is that the new Peter admits defeat to Miles and accepts the the job of helping Miles a little bit as they make it back to this collider so that the new Peter can go home. In that process, they also have a, a face-off with Doc Ock, who's also in the villain corner. They 
meet up with some more allies, including Gwen Stacy, the new student at Miles School, or so he thought, until she reveals that she is also from another dimension, and she was a spider woman in her dimension. They meet up with her. They also acquire some other spidey allies, including a manga girl who has a psychic connection with her spider that lives in her father's robot, a black and white noir uh, Spider-Man, and a cartoon Spider-Ham, who's a Spider-Man pig. It's like Porky Pig mixed with Spider-Man. So they have this very interesting group of Spideys by by the end of the rising action. And then we have uh, our first crisis. All of the allies have been gathered together and all of the opposition has been gathered together and then they face off. Usually in a story there is at least one crisis, but in superhero stories there tend to be at least two, maybe even three or four crises depending on the superhero movie. And in this superhero movie, there is a crisis happening at Aunt May's house where all of the Spideys face off with all of the villains. And the climax of this first crisis is a face-off between Miles and the Prowler, who's been hunting him to kill him. And in this face-off, Miles has found out that the Prowler is actually his Uncle Aaron, but hasn't revealed it to Uncle Aaron until this moment. And when the Prowler has him by the neck, he's hanging him out over a roof, and he's about to either kill him or drop him or strangle him or something, and Kingpin is pushing him on to just finish the job with this kid. Miles takes off his mask and says, Uncle Aaron, it's me, it's me, it's Miles. And Uncle Aaron steps away. It's one of the great... There are many great character moments through this movie, but this is one of the greatest. And Uncle Aaron chooses whatever repercussions will come to him through Kingpin rather than hurt Miles. He loves Miles. And this self-sacrifice of his Uncle Aaron is a key moment for Miles because it solidifies his resolve to finish the job that Spider-Man started. He wanted to finish that job. He wanted to follow through with his promise before, but after seeing that Uncle Aaron believes in him so much that he would give his own life in order to protect Miles' life, Miles finds this new sense of identity and this new sense of purpose thanks to the the love of his uncle Aaron. And he is determined not to let Kingpin get away with, with this, get away with killing his uncle Aaron, get away with ruining so many other lives due to his own selfish desires. But Miles isn't done with his transformation yet. And before he makes it to the final climax, the final crisis or resolution, he has to go through a couple more pitfalls. One of them is that after he watches his Uncle Aaron dies, he goes back to his dormitory and the other Spideys come to tell him that they are going on to the climax without him. They're going on to to fight Kingpin and that he has to stay behind because he's not ready to fight yet. They don't want him to get hurt or killed and they don't want him to... Uh, hamper their ability to complete the job, so they insist that he stays in his dormitory. This is especially hard for the new Peter, who has, since the, the beginning, has taken a really active parental role 
for Miles and has adopted him as a trainee and has invested a lot of hope and desire for for Miles to do well into their relationship. And when Peter has to stay behind and tell Miles, it's it's obviously very difficult for both of them, but Peter ties him up in a chair to make sure that he won't follow them and also gags him with the web so that he won't call for help or get out due to someone else's help either. While Miles is tied up in this room, he watches the Spideys leave him behind and he's stuck in this chair when his dad comes to talk to him, his dad has seen Uncle Aaron's death also, and his dad thinks that a, a Spider-Man did it. When his dad comes to talk to him, though, it's not really about Spider-Man anymore. They've, they've talked about that consistently at other points in the movie, but at this point, his dad is coming to Miles to reconnect with him. He's worried that he has been letting his ambition for Miles' future get in the way of their actual relationship. And he comes to tell Miles that he is he has been humbled, that he wants to be close to him more than he wants to pressure him towards success. And that really means a lot to, to Miles, to hear his dad say that he has something great, that he has a power that his dad respects. To know that his dad not only loves him as a parent, but also likes him as a person. That he thinks he is interesting. That his dad thinks he is powerful and unique and has something special to, to offer. That's a really inspiring uh, message for Miles. And even though he can't respond, this conversation, or rather this this one-sided conversation from his dad, this declaration from his dad changes Miles. And with this newfound security from the love of his uncle and the love of his dad backing him up, he now has the inner resilience to master his own powers. And we see him start to focus after this. He focuses inward and all of a sudden he has the mastery to control his electric hands. It seems like they want to call it a venom strike in the in the movie. I'm not a an expert on the comic book terminology, so that may be the wrong word, but I think they called it a venom strike in the movie. He masters this electricity that he's sending out of his hands, and he masters going invisible on command. And with these two powers, he makes his way back to Aunt May's house. He gets his own costume. He gets his own web slingers. He figures out how to web sling across the city. He develops his own style for swinging uh, through the city and running across the buildings, etc. He has become his own Spider-Man. He's really taken ownership of it at this point, including redesigning the costume, redecorating the costume in a way that suits him. And with this newfound power, or rather newfound mastery over the powers that he already had, he makes it to Kingpin's penthouse, and he makes it to the Collider, and he joins up with the other Spideys just in time to save the new Peter from being taken down by Doc Ock. And from that point on, the tides turn for the Spideys, and they start to win. They start to beat back the, the other villains, and... When they've beaten back all of the other villains, then they get to go home. And the final crisis of this 
this overall climax is uh, Miles facing down Kingpin and having a very physical climax confrontation with Kingpin as Kingpin is bigger, stronger, heavier, in some ways faster than, than Miles. But Miles ends up conquering that too by getting back up again and by using the shoulder touch from Uncle Aaron earlier. He uses the shoulder touch to venom strike Kingpin and then uses his webs to throw him up into the, the button that will finally reverse and destroy the collider and undo all of the damage that has been done by the intersection of all of these different dimensions. After the climax, then we have our final section of our story anatomy, which is called the denouement, or the resolution. The resolution, or the denouement, is when the story wraps up all of the loose ends. And for Miles, that means that he repairs the rest of the relationship with his dad. He delivers the bad guys to be arrested and imprisoned. He commemorates Uncle Aaron on the side of the police station with his dad in a a piece of tag art. Then he restarts his education at school and is really invested this time. He makes friends with his roommates. He seems engaged with his classes. He basically establishes a new normal in which he is completely confident in who he is as both Miles Morales and as the new Spider-Man, which is what he had been looking for all that long time ago in the beginning of the movie. He had been looking for that sense of identity, the sense of um, who he was and what he was supposed to be doing. And it took a very drastic inciting incident in order to reveal to him the incredible power he had to change the world or to help it for good. But in the end, he has established this new normal that is incredibly satisfying for us as the audience and exciting for him as the character. And that concludes our summary of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, but there is so much to talk about here. The writers and directors managed to just pack this story full of interesting, fleshed-out characters, uh, great story arcs, really, really tight writing. I haven't seen writing that th- that was this satisfying in a long time. It- it's rare that I would walk out of a movie and give it a 10 for 10. And this was one of those rare cases that I left the movie feeling like I can't think of anything they did wrong. Uh, After watching it several times, I could notice a couple very small logical flaws, uh, such as when Prowler is looking straight at Miles when, when Uncle Aaron has come back to his apartment and Miles has turned invisible behind the television. He's looking straight at Miles and can't see him, but then when Miles escapes and he is still invisible, Prowler comes to the window and looks down and he can see a heat signature on him. You know, there are several, like, inconsistencies of that caliber, but overall, it's a really, really tight movie. It's very well-written, well-thought-out. The cinematography parallels itself at the beginning and the end so beautifully, and it's hard to pick just a couple of things to talk about with this movie because there's so much good stuff to talk about. But let's, uh, let's start with one of my favorite topics, which is 
shoes. If you have listened to some of our previous story talk episodes like Cars or Cinderella or others, you will know that the feet of a character, the shoes of the character are really important symbolically as to what that character's identity is, how that character understands their identity, and how that character identifies his or her purpose. In Miles' case, the the symbolism is very clear, but you have to be watching for it in order for it to pop out. I didn't actually even notice it until the third time uh, watching the movie all the way through. And then this epiphany that he had the shoe symbolism too. It's so cool and so many characters have it. So it's a great place to start. So in Miles' case, the shoe symbolism is especially noticeable with his untied shoelaces. We hear it mentioned several times at the beginning of the the movie when he gets out of the police car after his dad has dropped him off at school. His dad says, and please tie your shoes as he's walking into the school. And then one of the first students that Miles talks to mentions that his shoes are untied. And Miles says, yeah, I know it's a choice. So we are repeatedly reminded that Miles' shoes are untied and that they're untied on purpose, which indicates symbolically that Miles is not quite committed to where he's going. He is resisting the direction that his life is pulling him. When you are going into a race that's really important to you, you don't leave your shoes untied. When you're going on an important adventure or an important date or an important interview, you don't forget to tie your shoelaces. But Miles is saying that he is leaving his shoelaces untied on purpose and it's symbolically because he has not committed himself to where he's going. For the beginning of the movie, he can get away with this non-committal attitude because he doesn't have anything that's demanding enough to make him tie his shoes or make him take his shoes off, I guess would be the, the other choice. But he doesn't have anything that's that's forcing him to make a decision about it, that's forcing him to stop just resisting what's happening and decide. But when he faces the reality of becoming Spider-Man, after he has been bitten by the spider and he has these spider powers developing, and then he sees Spider-Man die and he has this promise to fulfill, all of those things add up to him needing to make a decision about where he's going and what he's doing and what his purpose is. One of the best highlight scenes for this symbol is when Miles is at the top of a building. He's trying to convince himself to jump off the building. He's chosen the smallest building that he can find in order to test these powers. And then he runs towards the edge getting ready to jump, but trips on his shoelaces, which he still hasn't tied. He's wearing this Spider-Man costume and he trips over his shoelaces and he tumbles to a very painful landing in, in which he also breaks the goober and has to face the fact that he's not ready to be Spider-Man. He doesn't know how to do this. He needs help. In the subsequent scenes, his shoes aren't really showcased or mentioned until after the fight at Alchemex, when we start to notice that his shoes have been tied. For example, when, um, 
the new Peter and Gwen Stacy and Miles all show up at Aunt May's house and they're coming down the elevator into the old Spider-Man's lab. They have a shot directly on their feet as they're coming down on the elevator. And for the first time in the movie, Miles' shoes are tied. So we, we can sense that he has already gone through a bit of a transformation with the new Peter and with Gwen Stacy. He's been starting to find his footing, literally and figuratively, as Spider-Man. He's started to gain a sense of direction, but he hasn't let go of his imposter syndrome about being Spider-Man yet. He hasn't fully committed. He's not wearing a real Spider-Man outfit. He's still wearing the Spider-Man merchandise. He... Uh, He's still trying to be Miles as a pretend Spider-Man rather than a real Spider-Man. And when he um, is tested by the other Spideys and they start trying to test his reflexes, to test his fighting skills, to see if he can really measure up to being a Spider-Man, to see if he can fulfill this task of shutting down the collider while the rest of them go home, he fails a very important test for them, which is that he doesn't get back up again. And since Spider-Man always gets back up again, always, always, always gets back up again, and Miles doesn't get back up after they've been testing him, they conclude that he's not ready to be Spider-Man. And so they have a consultation right in front of him where he can still hear them, in which they say that we need to take control of this situation. One of us has to be in charge of the goober. He can't do it. He's not ready. He shouldn't be in this fight, etc. Miles is so humiliated by this encounter that he leaves the lab for Uncle Aaron's apartment. He's looking for refuge, looking for comfort, looking for empathy, which he has always found with Uncle Aaron. So he goes back to Uncle Aaron's apartment and there he begins to write Uncle Aaron a message about how he's really worried about this big thing that he believes he needs to do but doesn't know how to do it and he wants Uncle Aaron's advice and support as he as he learns how to do it. While he's writing the message though, someone comes to the window. This isn't the usual way of getting into an apartment, of course. This is the way Miles has come into Uncle Aaron's apartment on multiple occasions, but presumably Uncle Aaron would use the door. So this other figure comes to the window and lifts up the the window to come in and Miles realizes that it's the Prowler who's been hunting him. And when the Prowler comes into the apartment, he's walking around, he almost finds Miles and then he picks up the phone and takes off his mask and Miles realizes that uh, his Uncle Aaron is the Prowler. He manages to escape from Uncle Aaron, but the next time we see Miles with his shoes, they are half untied again, uh, signifying that he is really unhinged by discovering that his Uncle Aaron is one of the villains that he has to fight, one of the villains who took down Spider-Man, um, and also someone who's been trying to kill him for the last day or day and a half, I don't know, whatever time frame this movie is in. After he escapes from Prowler, though, Miles runs back to the other Spideys and unwittingly leads all of the other villains back to this first crisis that we already talked about in which they face off together. And the new Peter begins to take an actively protective role for Miles, where he is trying to tell Miles that he needs to get out of there. He needs to go 
protect himself. He is too emotionally vulnerable to be in this fight. And so Peter steps in to try and protect Miles when the Prowler, or Uncle Aaron, shows up. But he he isn't able to protect Miles from this. This is a situation that Miles just has to face. And as much as Miles runs from it, the Prowler catches up to him. Uncle Aaron catches up to him. And when they meet at the roof, Uncle Aaron gets Miles by the neck and he's holding him out over the rooftop about to uh, finish him, as Kingpin says, or kill him. And Miles is reaching with his very tip toes to touch the roof. And we get another shot of these feet as they are they are half dangling, half unsteadily trying to reach the roof, half untied. It is a really important moment for Miles' identity as a character, and he chooses to reveal the fact that he is Miles to Uncle Aaron. And when he lifts up the mask and says, Uncle Aaron, it's me, it's Miles, we get another important clue as to the special kind of Spider-Man that Miles is becoming. Because up to, up until this point, we have only ever seen the mask come off of Spider-Man in bad ways. Kingpin takes the mask off of Spider-Man just before he kills him. Uh, Doc Ock takes the mask off of the new Peter Parker as she's examining him and poking and prodding him. And every time the mask comes off, Peter is saying, that's a no-no, that's a no-no, we don't like that, don't take off the mask, don't tell anyone who you are. And here Miles is exposing himself fully to the primary enemy who has been hunting him for most of the movie. And we realize that Miles is a much more vulnerable and much braver emotionally than maybe any other Spider-Man that we've seen before. He has to trust Uncle Aaron so much that he can unmask in front of him, even though he knows Uncle Aaron has been trying to kill him this entire time. And when he does unmask, Uncle Aaron is staggered. He can't kill Miles. He loves Miles. And rather than hurt Miles, he steps back. He takes the shot in the back from Kingpin, and then Miles attempts to drag Uncle Aaron's body away with the webs. He attempts to sling, swing away on the webs. Uh, but of course, Uncle Aaron is very heavy, so he he can't go very far. He just has to find a private enough spot that he can lay Uncle Aaron down and say goodbye. After this, though, we go back to, to his dormitory, and then we go to Aunt May's house once he gains mastery over himself. And this key moment with Uncle Aaron and then the subsequent key moment with his dad in his dormitory form an emotional safe place for Miles that is so strong that from that point on, from the time that he leaves his dormitory until he uh, encounters Kingpin, he is sure-footed from then on. He goes back to Aunt May's lab. He gets his own spider suit. He has his shoes tied as he begins to swing through the city and run across buildings and jump off of gargoyles and do all kinds of flips and acrobatics and other things. And the whole time, he has real direction. He has real shoes. For a while, he's even wearing both of the shoes, both the Miles shoes and the Spider-Man spider suit shoes, which signifies that he has really 
combined both of his identities. He's not just Spider-Man. He's not just Miles. He's both of these people in one. And by the time he gets to Kingpin, he's just wearing his spider suit. But it's clear that his sense of identity has developed to the point where, where he doesn't resist the direction his life is pulling him anymore. He's fully committed to what he's doing as both Miles and as Spider-Man, which is really satisfying for us to watch. The shoe analogy doesn't just extend to Miles, though. You'll notice that throughout the movie, shoes play a pretty important part of establishing many of the characters. Uh, This applies especially to the new Peter who shows up in in this new dimension without shoes. His shoes have been burned off or blown off or something. He has no shoes by the time he gets to this dimension. And he has to borrow two different shoes from other places. It's part of the reason he looks a bit like a hobo. And his sense of direction is also very lost for most of the movie. Up until he goes to the the other Spider-Man's lab, he doesn't have real shoes because he hasn't found his true purpose again yet. He hasn't found his true sense of, of direction yet. After the visit to, to Spider-Man's lab, he starts to wear a full spider suit. And after that, he takes on a real responsibility for Miles, both as his his teacher trainer and his protective Spider-Man dad. His character arc continues developing all the way up until the final moment when Miles releases him to go back to his own dimension. But the main turning point for the new Peter is that fight at Alchemex and realizing that Miles cares about him and then meeting Aunt May again and seeing the lab and seeing the picture of MJ. All of those things combine to give him a new sense of direction and purpose and he uses that to both help Miles and propel him forward into repairing his life in his own dimension. Then we also have the shoes of Gwen Stacy. When she shows up as Spider-Woman, the first real shot we, we see of her meeting the, the old Spider-Man and uh, Miles Morales Spider-Man, the first shot we see of her is also her shoes, her ballet shoes, her iconic green ballet shoes as they are twined around her black suit. Then we have the shoes of the Prowler, who, which feature prominently in several of the shots, and the shoes of Kingpin. And the shoes are just really important. Pay attention to the shoes next time you watch it, and you'll find all kinds of, of interesting insights by watching the way that the shoes develop or change or identify a character and a character's motives. Another great thing to talk about with this movie is the love triangle, and I know that love triangle is often used to designate a a mixed-up romantic relationship. This is not a romantic relationship. It's a familial relationship. Nevertheless, love triangle is a very appropriate word to use for the dynamic that is created between Miles, his dad, and his uncle Aaron. These three characters have a really complicated, very realistic relationship. The dad and the brother, 
the meaning Jeff Davis and Aaron Davis have some kind of history that Miles only knows a very little bit about. He knows that he likes Uncle Aaron and that he feels safe and validated and supported by Uncle Aaron. And he he loves his dad but doesn't trust his dad in the same way. He also feels a lot of pressure from his dad. So he doesn't go to dad with his his problems and his concerns right away. He would rather go to Uncle Aaron because that's where he feels the most accepted. What we find out, though, over the course of the movie is that these brothers used to be very close. They used to go out and do this tagging art together. Uh, They used to rely a lot on each other. But at some point, there came a parting of ways. They had some kind of falling out and At the point that Aaron dies, it seems like the falling out was probably over Jeff deciding to become a policeman and become stricter about the law, and Aaron deciding to become the prowler and getting less strict about the law. In fact, disregarding the law completely to become villain, assassin, hitman on the outside of the law. And after this falling out, it was difficult for them to repair their relationship. Apparently, they repaired it enough to be on cordial terms with each other because Miles isn't alienated from his uncle. He's not, you know, not part of the family anymore or anything. They still talk and they still they still associate with each other, but their relationship is very tense after this this falling out that has happened outside of the scope of this story. The reason that I think the dad knows about Uncle Aaron as the Prowler is twofold. One clue is that when Miles swings away with the Prowler in his arms, uh, Uncle Aaron is invisible, of course, but he swings away and he swings right over his dad's police car to get to the back alley where he can be alone with Uncle Aaron. When his dad sees them swinging over, he turns to follow, which indicates that he recognizes Prowler or at least recognizes that there's something going on. When he gets to the alleyway and Miles goes invisible and escapes from the alley and leaves Uncle Aaron there with his dad, His dad doesn't come up with any kind of surprise that it's Uncle Aaron. If he had not known that Uncle Aaron was the Prowler, the obvious first reaction would have been to come up and think, what is this costume? What is he wearing? Is that really Uncle Aaron? Like there would have been a lot of different emotions going through, if only in his expressions. But the the main reaction he is having to the scene is shock that Uncle Aaron is dead, not surprised that Uncle Aaron is in a prowler suit. So that indicates to me that the the dad knew that Uncle Aaron was doing these bad things on the side as the prowler, and that that's the big reason he had lost respect for Uncle Aaron, and also the big reason he didn't want Miles to end up like him. He didn't want Miles to even do any of the same things that Aaron was doing, like tagging, because he he thought that he might get sucked into that same lifestyle of living outside the law, doing bad things, um, making choices that would compromise him later. So it seems like the dad knew that 
Aaron had chosen to be the prowler and had distanced himself in the relationship since then. But it's also obvious, and especially obvious after he has found Aaron dead, that he really loved Uncle Aaron. He missed him as his brother and that he regretted not valuing the relationship more than resenting the choices that Aaron had made. From Uncle Aaron's side of this relationship, it's also really layered and complex because he loves Miles and he loves going tagging with him. He loves supporting him and encouraging him and all of these good things. He loves being Miles' confidant and he loves uh, hearing about the things that Miles is, is doing at school. He's even trying to support Miles in some of the same ways that Miles' dad is encouraging Miles. He says, you know, it can't be all that bad. Smart girls are where it's at. And this doesn't seem to be a, uh, a piece a, of wisdom that he has gained from his own life experience, but he is trying to encourage Miles in what he thinks will be best for him, which is to do well at this school and to find friends and associates who will encourage him in the right ways. One of the most moving lines from the whole movie is Aaron speaking to Miles as as he is dying in this back alley, still dressed as the prowler, and he takes off his prowler glove and he says, Miles, you're the best of all of us. You're on your way. Just keep going. Just keep going. You're on your way. And this is a very impactful speech coming from the uncle, not only because it's exactly what Miles needs to hear in order to have uh, some security in his own identity, but also because we as the audience recognize that this is Aaron admitting that he was wrong about being the prowler, that this was not the right life path. He doesn't want Miles to end up like him. He doesn't want his nephew to make these same choices. He realizes that the prowler is not the example that he wants Miles to follow and that it was not who he wanted Miles to remember him as. In this final admission, we see not only how much he loves Miles, but how much he loves his brother, the dad, and how he breaks the mold for many, many of those who make bad life choices and end up unhappy. Usually a reaction to being unhappy is to try and get others to make those same mistakes so that you stop feeling alone or so that you can feel like you were just normal or something of that sort so that you feel vindicated in those bad choices rather than exposed by them. But Uncle Aaron shows an incredible amount of maturity here by by admitting that this is not who he wants Miles to remember him as. It's not who he wanted Miles to be. And he always wanted to be someone that Miles could look up to, but knows that the Prowler was not the person that Miles could look up to. So that's a, it's a really special moment there with, with Miles and with the dad, although the dad doesn't hear that part of the dialogue. It's still a special moment for us because we can connect the arc. We can heal that relationship for him and the dad, even though it doesn't happen between them on screen. Another thing to notice about this triangle that's happening is the way that the writers allowed healing for Miles with his dad over the course of the movie. Uh, part of that is the speech that 
The dad gives Miles through the door when Miles is bound and gagged after the Spideys leave. And the other part of that is when the dad is watching the fight with Kingpin and watching him as Spider-Man confront Kingpin as the Collider is bringing in multiple dimensions all around them. All of the scientists at this point have fled. All of the other Spideys have gone home. It's just Miles and Kingpin and his dad is watching nearby. And there is one part in particular in which Kingpin says, you ruined my chances to see my family ever again, and now I'm going to make sure you never see yours. And he attempts to kill uh, Miles, too, just like he killed the other Spider-Man by smashing him into the ground. And there, Miles gets the chance to to get up again, just like he, he missed the chance earlier when he was practicing with the other Spideys. This time, he does get back up again. And he can do that because he opens his eyes, and even from the ground, he sees his dad watching and his dad's voice is echoing through this collider chamber and he's saying get up spider-man get up come on you've got to get up you always get up and this is really significant for the dad because the dad for most of the movie has not liked spider-man he doesn't approve of spider-man he doesn't like the way he works outside of the law and so to have his dad there watching at this final battle and cheering for Spider-Man reassures Miles that his dad loves him in both of his identities because he's already heard his dad's speech to him as Miles outside the door of his dormitory and now he is hearing his dad support him as Spider-Man and he opens his eyes to see his family which is what Kingpin wanted to prevent him from ever doing again but he opens his eyes to see his family and his dad's encouragement gives him strength to get back up again and when he does get back up again he gives kingpin the the shoulder touch which he learned from uncle aaron in order to venom strike him electrocute him and then throw him into the ceiling where he presses the button that destroys the entire collider it's such a cool synthesis of this relationship going through the whole movie it just it just powers the entire emotional center of the movie. Uh, so really watch for the dad and Uncle Aaron and Miles and how their relationships affect one another. Maybe uh, you don't think that the dad knew about Prowler. Maybe you see more surprise in his face than I did. And that's fine. Go talk about that. It's a really great relationship, though. The writers have done an excellent job of laying this groundwork that provides plenty of emotional and intellectual possibility to fill it out um, on our own. They have fleshed the characters out so well in this story that we can take them and make them real people and really learn from them in our real world. This is a great segue into the last thing that I'd like to talk to you about with this movie, which is the ways that stories arc into our lives. Because every time we watch a story, especially with a movie that is set in a world much like our own, with people much like our own, with characters who look and speak and act and go to school and eat much like we do. Uh, you know, they're, they're not animals walking around. They aren't, um, they aren't in some 
space adventure. This is New York City, and we recognize a lot of the the scenery and the environments and the other stuff that's happening in this movie. And every story provides an analog for us with our real world. In the microcosm of the story, we see patterns and metaphors and things that, that cycle out into our world that inform our decisions, that prepare us to make choices about things, for us to become certain characters in our own lives. And of course, our real worlds are much more complicated and layered. And that's why we all rely on such a heavy diet of stories, because it takes more than just one story in order to fill us up with all of the metaphors and analogies that we need on a regular basis in order to face our own problems and dilemmas in our lives. So to go back to Spider-Man, this movie is especially powerful as an analog to the real world. Uh, for some obvious reasons and some less obvious reasons. One of the obvious reasons is that this is the first time we've had a black Spider-Man. You'll notice that the number 42 is consistently associated with Miles throughout the movie. And the, the number 42 has many different meanings. I saw a clip from one of the directors that said it was a number that indicated randomness or fate. Um, it's also the number that is used in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as the answer to everything. But I think one of the more uh, powerful analogs into our real world is that 42 was also the number of, of Jackie Robinson's jersey when he desegregated the baseball world from being an all-white sport into a mixed-race sport. And up until... Very recently, the cast of superheroes that we have had to draw from has been largely whites, and especially white males. So to connect Miles with the number 42 seems really appropriate since his role is not just as Spider-Man, and it is not just in his dimension. It's in our dimension to desegregate the superheroes. Miles here is becoming another Jackie Robinson for, for our arena of movies and superhero movies in particular. He emphasizes the fact that there are many different ways to be Spider-Man. That's one of the cool things about having all of these different Spideys from parallel dimensions meet up together is that you see all of the different ways that these similar powers can be channeled through unique people to create a unique character. And one of the most gratifying, satisfying sequences in the whole movie is watching Miles fully accept this power as his own and make it unique to him because he isn't a Spider-Man like any of the other Spider-Men. He moves differently, he dresses differently, he, he caters everything about his Spider-Man persona to be unique to him, which is his key to really unlocking the power of Spider-Man. We learn by the end of the movie that Spider-Man isn't so much one particular person as it is a, a set of 
powers that can be applied in different ways. Gwen Stacy applies it in her way. Peter Parker applies it in his way. The Peter Porker applies it in his way. They each apply the Spider-Man powers in this unique way, and Miles especially emphasizes to us as the audience, he reaches out into the audience in his uh, final speech to say that anyone can wear the mask, you can wear the mask, you can be your own unique version of Spider-Man. Now, Spider-Man in this uh, broader context, in in the analog to our world, the Spider-Man powers would actually be a metaphor for other gifts, talents, skills, or positions. All of those things give us a certain amount of power in the world. And with those powers, we, we each need to learn how to be unique with them, not in a self-conscious way, but in a way that is truly combining all of the unique gifts that we have been given. And this will be an especially powerful and potent message for racial minorities because Miles seems to be directly talking to those who feel like they haven't been represented under the mask. He says that if you didn't know that before, I hope you do now. I hope that you know that you can wear the mask. You can be powerful. You can make a difference. So that's one of the more obvious ways that the story reaches out into our world. One of the less obvious ways is the way that this movie reaches out to religious minorities as well. We learned from some of the comic book backstories that one of the Peter Parkers, the new Peter Parker, is probably Jewish from his wedding ceremony. And then we also see that there is this theme around the leap of faith that comes up from the new Peter Parker when he's talking to Miles. Miles is being tied up in his chair. The other Spideys are leaving. And he he knows that he isn't ready for this big fight, but he, he cries out as a last attempt to get some help from Peter. He says, how will I know when I'm ready? And Peter says, you won't. It's a leap of faith, Miles. That's all it is. It's a leap of faith. And then when Miles returns the favor to Peter and he's holding Peter out above the, the collider before Peter goes home, Peter is worried about going back and facing the life that he left and having to pick up the pieces and repair things with Mary Jane and do the things that he knows he needs to do if he goes back to his own world. He's worried about doing all of those things. And he says, Miles, how do I know I won't mess it up? And Miles says, you won't. And Peter says, right, it's a leap of faith. And then he lets go and he goes back to his world and we see that he does try to repair things with with Mary Jane. But this leap of faith theme is really beautiful because religious minorities are also very underrepresented in media. A lot of, of writers seem to not want to touch religion because it causes too much controversy. But I love that this movie just touches it well enough for us to know that it was thought about, but not so much that it causes any controversy. Most people of of religion can understand what this movie is trying to say by analog without 
feeling very up in arms about misrepresentations or or doctrinal disputes or or other things. It's a really great way of representing the the common theme among many religions, which is that you need to bring your unique gifts to the table. When you join a religion, you bring your gifts and you pass them through the power of faith in order to contribute to the whole, which is exactly what Miles does. He brings his unique gifts and puts them through the power of being Spider-Man in order to offer this gift to his whole community. And he does a lot with that gift. And it's, it's cool to see him take that leap of faith and reach out through the story to anyone who is watching and not feeling understood or appreciated in their efforts to make a leap of faith and to to try and understand them on that level. That's a really neat thing that this this story does. There are many other ways that this also reaches out into the real world. For example, you could also pursue the no expectations versus great expectations theme. That one is very interesting to pursue as well, but we don't have time to cover all of them, unfortunately, in story talk. So you'll have to go and watch the movie again and find someone fun to talk with it about so that you can pursue some of these other themes. It is just rich. It's a rich story environment full of these themes. Um, but before we end our time together, I'd like to remind you to please, uh, like and subscribe to the podcast. If you've been listening to it, come and join our Facebook page on, on Facebook. We have a Facebook page, uh, that you can like and follow and also a group where you can comment. So if you, if you can't find anyone who's willing to talk to you about Spider-Man, come join the group and we'll talk to you about it. And don't be nervous about saying something wrong because the whole point is, is figuring out how to say things better by talking about them. So come comment on our group on Facebook. You can find the Facebook page by our handle, which is at Story Talk Time, all spelled normally. You can also follow me on Instagram, where I've been sharing lots of quotes and things about story, and the, the handle is the same there, at Story Talk Time. And if you love Twitter and are only on Twitter, then we're also there at Story Talk Time, the same handle, at S-T-O-R-Y-T-A-L-K-T-I-M-E. I post a lot less on Twitter because I'm not a native uh, speaker of the, of the social media platform Twitter. I love Instagram and Facebook a lot more. But if you are just interested in updates on the podcast, I still update the Twitter enough for you to get the updates there. So please like and subscribe. Tell us what you thought of this episode. Tell us what you thought of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And if you had other cool thoughts or insights about things that were happening in um, in that movie, maybe you are an amazing comic book fan of Spider-Man. So you'd have a lot more insights than I would about the correlations between the comic book and the movie. But in any case, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for joining us in this story talk. Now go out there and have your own too. Happy story talks and we'll see you next time.